This is episode number seven with Peter Van Norden. Coming up, it was hands-on. What the hell is this thing called acting? And how do you get to it? How do you get to it when you need to get to it? But they were my first two auditions, and I had to tell you, it had an effect on me. It had a real effect on me. I thought, wait a minute, this is not what I. Am I right for this? Am I, is this what I want to go through in my life? Is this really what I want? Because regional theaters are funny that way. They all sniff each other's butt. They all know what's going on in every other regional theater. So if you get a good reputation somewhere, other regional theaters are going to know about that too. I tell that to people now. I feel more at home on stage than I do in life. It's a safe place for me. Hey there! Thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Are you a subscriber yet? If not. Click that subscribe button so that you do not miss anything ahead. And if you have an extra moment, go ahead and rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. That will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all your comments and thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to the Working Actor's Journey. My name is Nathan Agin, and this podcast is in-depth interviews with working actors, people who have been doing this and getting paid for it professionally for thirty, forty, fifty plus years. It is about finding out what took them from A to B. How did they get started? How do they actually work on material? What challenged them? What did they face early on in their career? What do they still get challenged by? And what have they learned from a lifetime of acting? That's what the goal and the purpose of this show is. And so I'm glad you are here. Now, a quick word about me, your host. Again, my name is Nathan Agin. I'm an actor. I studied theater at the University of Southern California. Done a lot of theater, a little bit of TV and film. I'm also an entrepreneur. Work for myself online. I'm a bit of a goofball, which maybe you'll hear on this show. And I'm also a bit of a Shakespeare nerd. Love studying it, reading it, performing it whenever I get the opportunity. Just so you know, there's going to be about ten episodes for the first season of this podcast. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check them out. You can get a book that's an hour long or 15 hours long. Doesn't matter. Whatever you pick, it's free. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com/audible. I do have a recommendation with a fantastic narrator. If you want to hear an actor who is exceptional at this stuff, check this book out: "Patient Zero" by Jonathan Mayberry, read by Ray Porter. Ray is one of the greats, and he's been named Audible's Narrator of the Year. Now, don't get thrown by the cover. It's not a typical zombie book, which is not my kind of genre. It was the reviews that sold me. I mean, people really enjoyed the story, but thought that Ray was the true hero of this one. I mean, they loved him so much. Some people wished they could give him more than five stars. And when I started listening to this book, I honestly had to remind myself several times that it's just. Him reading the books and not a dozen different actors. He's that good, and I've been lucky enough to work with Ray on stage, and I know what a great talent he is. So here's actually a clip from Patient Zero, read by Ray Porter. Chapter One. 
when you have to kill the same terrorist twice in one week, then there's either something wrong with your skills or something wrong with your world. And there's nothing wrong with my skills. They came for me at the beach, nice and slick, two in front, one big cover man behind in a three-point close while I was reaching for my car door. Nothing flashy, just three big guys in off-the-rack gray, all of them sweating in the Ocean City heat. The point man held up his hands in a no-problem gesture. It was a hot Saturday morning, and I was in swim trunks and a Hawaiian shirt with mermaids on it over a Tom Petty t-shirt, flip-flops and wayfarers. My piece was in a locked toolbox in the trunk with a trigger guard clamped on it. So you can choose this book, which clocks in at 14-plus hours and, for me, flew by, or choose any of the endless options that Audible offers. Could be a book, a newspaper, a magazine, or even a class. It is that easy. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Again, that's workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial. Today on the show is Peter Van Norden. He's an actor that has worked for over 45 years on both stage and screen. Peter graduated magna cum laude from Colgate University and studied with Sanford Meisner and many others at the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York. He's worked both on Broadway and off and has appeared in two star-studded productions of Hamlet at the New York Shakespeare Festival one with Sam Waterston as the lead, the other with Kevin Kline. He has over 60 credits on IMDb, and film TV work includes the award-winning film The Accused with Jodie Foster, Stephen King's The Stand miniseries, and opposite Steve Gutenberg in Police Academy 2. He has done radio plays with L.A. Theater Works, has worked extensively in Los Angeles theater, and in regional theaters all over the country, doing everything from musicals, Shakespeare, and Shaw to new works. Now, like I mentioned earlier with the offer to grab the audiobook read by Ray Porter for free, you could get one of the audiobooks Peter has done, The Maple Stories by John Updike. Just visit workingactorsjourney.com slash audible to download The Maple Stories by John Updike, read by Peter Van Norden. One of my favorite experiences as an actor was doing a one-night staged reading of George Bernard Shaw's Misalliance with Peter. It was a last-minute situation. I had to fill in for somebody. I had like two days to prepare. And I was so unbelievably nervous. I could feel my legs shaking on stage. I thought I would literally fall down if I kept shifting my weight from leg to leg. And yet it is, without a doubt, one of the highlights of the acting work I've done. Peter was wonderfully supportive and just amazing in the reading. And it included many other fantastic actors, including Armin Shimmerman from episode number two. Now, in today's episode, Peter and I talk about the show that changed his life, what set him on the path to being an actor, doing musicals in high school, what he hopes to achieve in his acting, 
What he learned from watching both Meryl Streep and Phil Bosco rehearse plays, how to measure your career as an actor, what he wishes he had focused on more, plus a lot of other great things. Now, what I find particularly relevant about this conversation is that you hear how Peter really struggled in his early years, dealing with the same things that many actors face, not knowing a technique, having self-doubt, questioning himself, questioning his choices, and the rejection. It is all there. We also explore how Peter works on a monologue from The Hothouse by Harold Pinter, so be sure to stick around for that. In fact, at the time of publishing this episode, Peter is on stage doing this play with the Antias Company in Los Angeles, so you can actually go see him do this role after you hear him talk about it. And if the production is still open when you hear this, it's running until March, and you can make it, go check it out. So here we go with episode number seven. Please enjoy my chat with Peter Van Norden. You were working right up until the the 24th, right? 23rd. We did two shows on the 23rd. Okay. And uh, we finally closed in Ventura while it was burning to the ground. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting interesting process here. You know, we lost a whole week because of the fires up there. Um, but the, we did the last two weeks of the show because the theater miraculously was not harmed, although it had to be cleaned and uh, the upholstery had to be washed. The smoke damage was pretty intense. The air mm. quality was horrific. Um, so it took them the week to clean it. But uh, we did the last two weeks, and it became this sort of um, community rallying thing uh, amongst a lot of people who really had a lot of damage done. Um, the theater offered free tickets to anyone who uh, who suffered from the fires and to all first responders, to uh, firemen and, and anyone who helped out. And, and so it really was this, uh, it was quite uh, a joyous thing to do f- f- as my last year of Christmas carols. I've done it for five years um, and uh, the theater is not doing it next year. Thank God. <laughs> it's killing me physically. I, I, did it for, I did it two years in San Diego. And now three years up in Ventura, playing Scrooge. What did you discover about the character this year? Um, the thing that I found, and, and it was interesting because the producers of the show noticed it too, was a deepening of the end of our act, first act. The first act is, when, is the end of Christmas past, when Scrooge uh, sees Belle, his, what would have been his, his girlfriend, um, who, who he has broken up with because of his changed nature. He sees her uh, as a mother, and he has this just astonishing, beautiful piece of poetry that Dickens wrote. And, and the way that this piece was done was very storybook, storyteller theater. Um, so I really just read all this narration as if Scrooge was undergoing it at the time. And the regret and, and the the loss, the bitterness and the loss that he felt at that time, I think was deeper this year than it's ever been. Um, only because it's just, it's, it takes time for that new material. We put it in last year at my request, actually. It was a scene that I thought, you know, we don't see his regret. We don't see it enough for him to squash the light, to squash the light of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas present. She's a light. 
and he basically squashes it at the end of at the end of Christmas Past. And I said, well, we don't see the we don't really see enough to make him do it. And the addition of this scene was absolutely critical, I think, and it really worked beautifully. And so by the second year we had it in, I think it was it flowed beautifully, and it just it was emotionally really attached. That I think was a big, you know, not a big, not a huge difference, but it was a noticeable difference to me. It's a kind of thing that you know you do something so intensely for so long and for so many years that little tiny changes are what you notice, where the audience probably wouldn't notice at all. They would just know that they were having a good time, or they were they were feeling something more strongly than than they had before. So I think that for me that was that was noticeable to me this year. Yeah, I mean it's such a it's such a fun character because he goes through such a transformation in uh you know over the course of the play. It's a roller coaster ride. And then for you to come back to it, you know, you have almost a year between shows. I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, you know, just as life goes on, like there are things that go on in your life that you know now you're bringing to it in year five that without you did in year one. Yeah. Well, without a doubt, you know, everything affects you personally. And that's what you bring to any character that you play. So you bring your life experience to any character that you play. And different parts of Scrooge's journey certainly resonate more or more differently each year that you do it, without a doubt. That's part of it. I mean, that's that's the only reason you can do anything for five years is because it has such depth to it that you can always continue experiencing and always continue learning and always continue growing in, in, in some artistic sense, you know, otherwise it's like, wow, it would be really hard. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of extraordinary sticking with, with Scrooge for a second, like how many versions of A Christmas Carol, at least on film there are, it, it just, I, I mean, I think it shows like how, how really kind of powerful the story is and how resonant it, it just, it just never goes out of sight. I mean, like Shakespeare and, and things like that, but it's just, it's so universal. It's a classic for a reason, because it always it's always relevant. It's always relevant. I always say to people, people always ask me, oh, what's it like to play this role? I always say to people that the audience comes in, they kind of know the piece. Some of them know it very well. Some of them know it you know, from the film or the comedic film versions of it or whatever. But everyone has some connection to it. And when the play starts for the first 15 or 20 minutes, they're all like, oh, yeah, that guy Scrooge. I know people like that. Oh, yeah, miser guy. Yeah, I know people just like that. But if, the, if, if, if it's done correctly, if it's done the way Dickens wrote it, I promise you that by the time they come to the resolution at the end of this play, they are going, that's me. That's who I am. And I need to be a better person. I need to be reborn the way Scrooge is reborn. I need to be better to other people. I need to take responsibility for that. Um, and that's a powerful, powerful message, especially, you know, at Christmas time when people are open to it. And that's part of the joy of doing it is, is people's response is, uh, can be very, very emotional. And, and that's really rewarding. And that's been my approach to it. You know, as you say, there's been so many, so many versions of it. Oh, my God, thousands and thousands over the years, you know. I mean, I know that in San Diego, they did it for 35 years, and each year they did a kind of different version of it. Hmm. You know, Christmas Carol on the Moon, Christmas Carol uh, in the Circus, Christmas Carol at the Homeless Shelter. And I just, I told them when they, when they first asked me to do it, I, I don't have any interest in that. I said, I'm, I'm so taken with the Dickens piece and, and how he wrote it and the poetry that, that is in it. That that's really the only interesting way that I would want to be involved. I want to do the Victorian English version. Um, 
And I find that it's just, uh, it's a remarkable piece. It, it, it astonishes me every year how the, the depth of it and, 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 and the why he wrote it, you know. He didn't write it to be funny. It's a ghost story. It's a ghost story. He wrote it to scare people. Hmm. And when it works well, it's exactly what it does. Well, all right. We're well, using Scrooge as kind of a uh, a transition here. <laughs> I want to go back to uh, yeah, springboard to to your past. And uh, where did you grow up, Peter? New York. Or as I like to tell people, I was born in a small island back east, Manhattan. <laughs> it was this, uh, were you uh, in one of the boroughs or upstate New York? Yeah, I was born in Manhattan, only because my mother's uh, doctor was in uh, St. Vincent's Hospital in Manhattan. <laughs> but they lived in the Bronx. So I, I was in the Bronx till I was five. Uh, and then my family moved out to Long Island, and I really grew up on Long Island. Um, I went to both grammar school and high school there. And what did your parents do? And my mom was a housewife, a very content housewife. She loved being a housewife. Three kids. I'm the middle child. My brother's a year older. My sister is seven years younger than me. My dad was a private investigator, a PI. What kind of uh, cases did he have? Oh, so so many different kinds, you know. Yeah, he had certain clients that he specialized with, New York Central Railroad. Um, a lot of insurance claims. That's what most PIs actually deal with, you know. Joe Blow says he can't go to work because he hurt his back. Well, you know, there's a guy with a camera going, there's Joe Blow carrying his garbage cans out. Doesn't, his back seems to be fine. Um, that, that kind of, that, there's a tremendous amount of insurance work involved. Um, there are other cases that are very sort of much more interesting and much more sort of uh, salacious. <laughs> but yeah, he was a private private eye his whole life, basically. He was also an attorney. Oh, really? Yeah, he was. He studied to be a lawyer, and he fell into actually taking over this International Security Bureau. It was a PI firm in, in Manhattan. When the boss was basically thrown out, as he was illegally wiretapping people. <laughs> He was thrown out. My father, so the business landed in his lap as a very young man, and he ran it for most of his life. Was it the attorney work and or the PI work? I mean, there's such a there's such a performance element, certainly to types of uh, lawyers or attorneys. And then there's definitely this kind of story element with the PI of like what's really going on and what's being did that start any kind of ideas of acting and you like did, were you fascinated by the stories your dad you know was involved in i think I, I was always fascinated with any kind of stories that had uh some kind of emotional punch to them um some of them definitely were my father's definitely um a lot more but i think came from my love of a film tv the entertainment and, and my father's love it. Um, nobody in my family was ever in show business. They knew nothing about show business. But my father was uh, a movie fanatic, loved movies, and he was a, sort of a movie trivia buff. And he loved musicals, living in New York. So there was always some soundtrack playing in my home. Um, and my connection to the theater started through musical comedy. You know, my parents would take my brother and I. Um, to see certain Broadway shows, not very many, not, uh, you know, didn't have the money for that. But, you know, once in a while, we would go see Broadway shows. And that's what truly made me want to become an actor. I mean, that was that was a seminal moment for me uh, as a young child. Uh, 19, I'm going to say 1962, maybe, was um, the musical How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Um, and it was probably the second or third musical I'd seen. I remember my very first musical was Mary Martin in Sound of Music, Mary Martin in the Theater of a Kill. I think my second was, was Carol Channing in Hello, Dolly. And my third was Bobby Morse 
in how to succeed. And I so remember, so 1962, I would have been 11. Uh, I so remember watching Bobby Morse in that show, thinking to myself, look at what that man does. He can make me laugh. He can make me cry. He can make me love him. He can make me hate him. He can do all these things to me. I really would love to be able to do that one day. Um, I was so fascinated by him. Um, <laughs> I've met him several times since as, a, as an older man, and I told him that story. And, of course, his response was, I know I said to him, you know, listen, you're, you're the reason I'm an actor. You really, seriously, you're, you're actually the reason I'm an actor. To, to which he would say, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so what were you involved in up to that point, uh, you know, as a kid? What, what were your interests before, you know, uh, that came in? Um, sports. My brother and I were both deeply into sports. Baseball every day of our lives uh, in the summer and the spring. And then football. Baseball, football, every single day. Um, some tennis, you know, stuff like that. But oh my gosh, I, you know, there wasn't a day that didn't go by that we, our house was near these fields that were connected to the high school, actually. And it's just every day of our life we were we were out there playing baseball, playing wiffle ball in the driveway, playing tennis, playing football, playing touch football, whatever. But uh, a, a vast amount of our time was spent in sports. That's before I really started to do theater, which was in high school. What was it about? what Bobby did for you that you were excited? Did you feel like, you know, were you quiet or were you shy? Did you see this, you know, like his ability to really connect with people? Was that, was that something you were yearning for or you just, I think I, I was extremely quiet and shy as a kid. And I think that I saw that outlet as something that if I could use it, that it was a way of expressing myself without, expressing myself it was expressing someone else myself through someone else which is um as as you know it's a great safety barrier actually uh, to play another character it's fascinating and it's wonderful and it's thrilling and all that but it's also well that's not me it's it's a character that i'm playing and i think for a shy kid and i was terribly shy um i think it was uh, a potential outlet for me that i saw as a way to express it's a way to to emote. How much older was your older brother? One year older. Irish twins. Okay. So were you guys, um, were you in his shadow at all or did you? No. No? No. We were very different. Uh, certainly the older we got, the more those differences became clearer. Is that there was an artistic bent that I was headed on through high school and into college. Um, and he was not uh, in any way interested in show business or acting or any of that stuff. Uh, he ended up being um, a, a stockbroker on the floor of the stock exchange for 35 years at Smith Barney and is now retired living in South Carolina. Uh, but we're still very close. Uh, we've always been very close to my, <laughs> I have his kidney inside me. <laughs> I had a kidney transplant in 1992 and my brother gave me a kidney. But no, uh, he, I don't think he, uh, I ever felt in his shadow. No, not at all. I was a very, very good student. <laughs> La-di-da. You know, I was the A student, uh, Phi Beta Kappa, uh, Magna Cum Laude. Uh, my brother was not. My brother was a, a good student, but not a great student at all. And, uh, and so if anything, I think he lived in my shadow a little bit in that way. Going back to the point you were saying in terms of being yourself and, and being able to kind of mask that through a character uh, you're playing, I actually, I saw a clip recently of uh, Helen Mirren, and I think she was doing a class online, and she said, um, she walked on frame and sat down, and she said, what I did 
was just the most difficult thing an actor can do is be yourself, you know, walking on a stage and sitting down. And because it, it, it does go into that point you were just talking about of you, for whatever reason, you feel more comfortable or, you know, one can feel more comfortable being another person and not, and being vulnerable through that outlet, as you were saying. Without a doubt, it's a shield. It's a shield from your own insecurities about you. And if you are enough, I always tell actors, you are enough. And, and no actor believes it. <laughs> Nobody believes that they themselves are enough. Uh, they always think, you know, got to put on a character. I've got to but, drum up some phony emotion. I've got to whatever. And I, I, you know, we're all so different. We're all so interesting. Uh, if we would just leave ourselves alone, we are enough. Actors are enough. People are enough. So as a good student that you that you said you were and, and you were playing sports and, and so and all that, where did your insecurity come from? What uh, what was it that you wrestled with that, you know, if you were doing well in sports and doing well in, in academics? For me, it was size. I was always the fat kid, the big kid, the husky kid. I mean, it's, just, it's something I, I've battled my whole life. My whole family has battled it. Um, uh, and and that's, that, that leads to a tremendous insecurity, I think, um, in most people who suffer from it, who, who try to deal with it. That was always was always part of my persona, you know, the big guy. Hey, you're the big guy. I am the big guy. That's, that's not, I could lose a hundred pounds, I'll still be the big guy. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's some. Uh, I think the bigger part of my insecurities came from that, came just from f- physicality. I was also. I mean, I spent a lot of my time dealing with health issues you know, my whole life, um, and there's some insecurities from that too. I think. When you started doing theater, you said it was in high school when you actually started acting and, and getting yeah. involved in plays. So how did that come about? Did you know you wanted to start auditioning for the plays and things like that? So my high school, uh, Melbourne High School on Long Island, was very famous because they did one big musical every year. And it was a big event. It was a huge event. You know, I think we probably did three or four performances of it. And they were always completely sold out in a very large auditorium that was part of the school. And they became this kind of uh, community event. Everybody knew about them. And that was before I even got into high school. So by the time I got into high school, I was aware of those things. And I always thought, well, that would be a great thing to be part of, to be part of those musicals. The teacher who was the head of that, a man named Charles Messenger, was a theater fanatic. And um, hooking up with him in his English class... And learning rudimentary Shakespeare through him, I know his interest in theater. Him, he talking all, all all the time about shows that he had gone to see in New York, and him and him directing the musicals every year. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a part of that, uh, and I was lucky enough all four years that I was in high school, all three years that I was in high school, um, to be part of those those big musicals. I, interesting, I didn't do many plays uh, because my background was just so musical comedy. It's what I knew. It's what I loved. It's what I appreciated. And there were other people who were doing these avant-garde plays, you know, Harold Pinter. Oh, my God. Um, stuff that I just went, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. <laughs> because I had no experience with it. I really wasn't exposed to it at all. It wasn't until I got into college when that start, started to become a much bigger part of my life. Um, but doing those musicals all three years in high school was, um, it was a big event. It, 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 and we spent a lot of time rehearsing them. 
Um, and the, you know, for a high school musical, they were good shows. They were they were solid. I learned a tremendous amount. Do you remember any particular uh, roles or, or the the shows you guys did in high school? Absolutely. My first show there was Bye Bye Birdie. I was in the chorus. Uh, the second show was South Pacific. I played Captain Brackett. And the third one was we did Wonderful Town. Uh, Leonard Bernstein's Wonderful Town. And I played uh, Mr. Apopolis, who was the, the uh, landlord. Those are the three shows that I did in high school. And memorable. They were memorable. Looking back, could you see at the time, or, or can you see now, how you were progressing as a musical theater actor? I don't think I saw my progression in myself so much. I was, uh, I don't know if I was capable of seeing it at that point. What I saw was other people's response. And this was very important. I mean, I so distinctly remember after my first or second high school musical, just walking through the hallways and having teachers who I didn't even know, who I hadn't had as a, as a student, would stop me and go, do you know how really good you are in those plays? Said so you should consider taking that up. I mean, that was you, you're really good on stage. It was very impressive. Well, um, I always thought, yeah, I, I felt I had a certain awareness of what it meant to be on stage and to, to have a certain presence and a certain discipline to be vocally present. Uh, very important. Um, I, I felt I had some of that. I didn't know how much of it I had. I certainly didn't know whether I could pursue it. Per- professionally. Um, but by the end of high school, I knew that I was going to try because I'd gotten so much good feedback about it that I knew that I was headed in that direction. So was that was that the plan was to go to Colgate and major in theater? It wasn't the plan. I wanted to go to a liberal arts school. Colgate at that time did not have a theater department. They had a theater department. They did not have a theater major. They only had an English major, which in, in hindsight is probably one of the smartest, luckiest things that ever happened to me. I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, but my parents, there was no, uh, I don't think I ever went to my parents and went, you know what, I'm going to be an actor. Um, they would have thought I was insane. Uh, given my physical type, my my uh, complete lack of knowledge of the business, their lack of knowledge of the business, they would have, it would have been completely alien to them. However, they were never, never, never anything but completely supportive of it when I made the decision. I received two letters from my father in my life. He didn't write letters. Wrote me a letter when I was in London. I was I was in London for a semester when I was in college. And he wrote me a letter in London, basically just because telephone calls were so expensive then, just filling me in what was happening at home. He just happened to want to write a letter. That was the first letter he wrote me. The second letter he wrote to me was I was a junior in college, and I had done a production of Pirandello's Henry Four, playing Henry Four. And my parents came up to see it. And it was a big trip. It was a five-hour drive you know, from New York to Colgate, up to Hamilton, New York. It was a big trip for them, and... and uh, at the end of it, they were very. They seemed very proud and very sort of happy that they came to see it and all that. And it seemed, but you know, a week later, I got this letter from my father saying, "Listen, we don't know anything about this business. We can't help you in this business. I, 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 I don't know to even what to tell you. What any step you should take is, I have no idea. But you should do it. You're good. You're really good at this. You're noticeably good at this, and you have our complete support if you want to do this." It meant a lot to me. I'm going to tell you, my father was not a emotional person. So for him to, to say that to me meant a great deal, meant a great deal. My father was a Marine. He was an ex-Marine. He was World War II. You know, he was that guy who's tough, tough as nails with a heart of a teddy bear. Now, that's just who he was. You know. 
So for him to, to for him to say that to me at that point in my life was uh, was a big deal. It was a big thing to me. It, it's really kind of interesting that we talked earlier a little bit about that theater and acting can can mask you, and, and it, I, I, that kind of visual comes up again for me when you talk about Marines. Like there is this kind of masking of your emotions. Of uh, there's a detachment almost uh, in that regard. So it's just kind of fascinating that. That parallel, I guess, that that you had that you had this presence in in your life of someone who had this, you know, obviously very human emotional core, and yet didn't show it, and and you responded to something that could allow you to kind of detach yourself from, and in a very big way, showing yourself to an audience, you know, really being open, and yet not being that person. I think you're right. I think. Um... I think that in the back of my soul somewhere, I realized that that there was this vulnerable human being inside my father. And there, there certainly was. There's no question. And that given the nature of the times and, and who he was and how he grew up, that there was the, this manly thing that was in front of it all the time. Not all the time, but, but um, much of the time. Um, and that somehow showing that vulnerability was not a manly trait. And I think I, I learned very early that I wanted to show that side. Because that was the side I knew that moved people. I, I knew it at an early age when I watched Poppy Morris. That was the side that made people go, oh, my God, look at that man. I feel something about that. I, I, it moves me. It says something to me. It makes me laugh. It makes me cry. You know, it's it's not the facade; it's the actual vulnerable human being inside, um, and that's been a big part of my career, my sort of modus operandi as an actor. Find the human being, find the real person that's vulnerable, because that's who we write our dramas about. You know? And the more you can emotionally fulfill that, the better off you're going to be. So you mentioned that there is a good reason why you were an English major. I want to get back to that story. You said you were going to fill us in on why why it was a good idea you were an English major. It wasn't my idea. It was what I wanted to do because there was no theater major. So I became an English major. The thing that, that ended up being so advantageous to me to this day is that because I was an English major and not a drama major, my attention as a student was on literature and not on performance, although I did a tremendous amount of acting in college. It was always separate from the studies, the, the uh, educational studies. But what I learned in college was what makes a good script and how to tell a good script from a bad script. That is so invaluable to an actor. And I think a lot of actors don't know good scripts from bad scripts. I, I find it all the time um, that they're sort of suckered into something because it maybe has a good role for them or something that has a political message for them or something, but it doesn't make great drama. It doesn't make great theater. Um, and, and I feel that my training at Colgate, my literature training at Colgate, um, and, and I did study a lot of playwriting, not writing plays, but you know the history of plays, the history of drama, the history of that. Uh, that to me was invaluable. And as soon as I got out of college, I knew better. I just felt I knew better than most young actors did about why a play was a good play and why play was not a good play. Uh, And that's really served me. 
Do you remember a couple ideas or, or kind of criteria that, that have stuck in your head from those days of, of things that you're like that, that now you're able to more quickly see or identify, oh, this, it has this or, or I'm looking for X, Y, Z, you know, those kinds of things, those kinds of traits? Yeah, I mean, it's um, they're all going to sound pretty, probably pretty banal, you know. I mean, the structure of a play is 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 a very specific thing. Uh, there are many different ones, but they're all very specific in terms of what makes them successful. You know, go back to Aristotle, beginning, middle, and end. You know, a compressed time element. Mostly, it's the storytelling. It's the storytelling. Great plays tell stories. And they tell them in different ways, and they tell them in interesting ways, and they tell them in, in sometimes sort of complex and, and oblique ways. Uh, but knowing, knowing what story it is you want to tell and how to get to the point of that story in the least amount of time is, uh, is a gift. <laughs> it's a gift that most playwrights struggle with. So you mentioned you were doing a lot of acting at Colgate. Were you ta- you were were you taking classes and developing your technique at this time? No, not at all. There were no classes in basically acting or in performance, not at Colgate, because there was no drama department. However, there was a man who ran the drama department. There was no drama major, I keep saying before. But there was a man who ran the drama department. He was a Canadian teacher, and he was a vastly influential person in my life, a man named Atlee Sproul. Uh, long since passed away, but he was a classically trained Canadian actor director, and um, his emphasis at Colgate was classical theater. So we did a tremendous amount of classical theater at Colgate. And when I studied with Atlee, he he did teach some classes in the history of plays and mostly classical plays. I learned a tremendous, tremendous amount about the nature of classical theater, which served me so well as a young actor, as a young actor in New York, you know, being able to do Shakespeare, being able to go into Moliere, being able to do uh, any classical piece at all, Shaw, that, that's a major asset when you're a young actor, a major asset. There was also a, a Shakespeare professor, uh, just a beloved Shakespeare professor, Jonathan Kistler. Um, had been at Colgate for many, many years, became a good friend of mine. Just before he died, <laughs> he came to New York to see a production of Hamlet that I was in with Kevin Klein. Memorable to me that this man who taught me so much about the feelings of Shakespeare, the emotions of Shakespeare, the beauty of the poetry of Shakespeare, uh, that he had come to see me just before he died. It meant a lot to me. But th- those are the things I learned away from performance. Now, Performance in college for me was, um, let's get it right because we open next week. Right? There was no study of acting. It was like, I hope you know what you're doing because here we go. This is this, here a, we go. It's We're assembly line training. You're just being yeah, thrown in there. Yeah, that's exactly right. But that's interesting because when I came out of college, I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I certainly knew I was going to try to be an actor, but what path was I going to take? And it was Atlee, my my theater professor at Colgate, who said to me. He pointed me in two directions. He pointed me in the direction of Yale, in the direction of Juilliard and Yale, those kinds of things, and in the direction of the neighborhood playhouse, uh, Sanford Meisner, a teacher of the neighborhood playhouse. Now, I knew when I came out of college, I knew that I was pretty good at this thing called acting. I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know what acting was. I just knew that if you stuck me up on stage and gave me a role, I would find somewhere to play it. That, that hopefully would be moderately successful. <laughs> um, 
but I didn't know how or how to approach problems that I might have with a character or something like that. That I really didn't know much about. It was Sandy who taught me that. So that progression for me was a great progression. It was, it was a really important progression. I knew that I could do it. I needed to learn what it was that I was doing. And I, and I did learn that from, from the neighborhood playhouse. I want to jump in there because I'm really curious. So if you had this interest in acting in theater, how did you end up at a school without a theater major? Were you inter- like, did you audition or did you know you just wanted to go into something acad- more academic or you thought you might because of your school and grades or? No, I wanted, uh, you know, if it, back in, the, I, I started college in 1969. Back in 1969, the thing to do was to go to a liberal arts college. That was the thing to do. Um, because most of us back at that time didn't really know exactly what we wanted to do. I mean, most of the people I went to college with had no idea what they wanted to do. They still don't know what they want to do. Um, I had an inkling that I wanted to try this acting thing. But at the age of 18, I certainly didn't know that that was going to be a path that was going to be open to me and that was the only path I would ever take. So a liberal arts college to me at that point seemed like a good idea. Because if my choices had changed, if my career pattern had changed somehow, having that liberal arts degree, I think, would have been very, very useful to me. So that's why I did it, actually. Yeah, and you mentioned it. Uh, I definitely want to get to the neighborhood playoffs. But as you mentioned, you know, the time that you were going into college, you know, it was a, it was a hugely monumental shift politically and, and culturally in our country. Were you seeing any of that in college? Were you involved in oh, any God. of that stuff? You, you couldn't not see it at a sure. liberal arts college in upstate New York. There was yeah. no chance you were not going <laughs> to see it. It was everywhere. Right. I mean, it was it was the way we lived our lives. It, it was part of everything we did. The war protests, uh, the racial strife. My, I went to a high school that was 60 percent black. We had a tremendous amount of racial strife in my senior year. My, half of my senior class was arrested. So politically, yeah, the, it, it was a time of turmoil. It was a time of tremendous turmoil. And, and you know, we say that today there's all this divisiveness. There was more divisiveness in the 60s. Trust me, there was more. People don't remember, but it was really divisive uh, to the point of violence. It was never a huge part of my life. I avoided it. I was too busy doing theater. I was too busy making my own statement in the way that I felt was most effective. You know, I felt that for me, doing a great play that said something, doing Ubuah, you know, was what doing that meant more to me than marching on Washington. It touched people personally, and it changed people uh, more effectively, in my opinion. And that's where I threw my attention. I was always doing some piece of theater somewhere while everyone else was out marching. <laughs> so how did you get into the Neighborhood Playhouse? Was it an audition process? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I applied to Yale. I applied to Juilliard. I was not accepted at Yale. I was accepted into the four-year program at Juilliard, as opposed to the two-year program, which is what I applied for. Uh, I had worked my senior year in college. We had a summer theater, Colgate Summer Theater, and two of the actors, three, sorry, three of the actors uh, that worked in that summer theater were were first-year Juilliard students. Mary Lou Rosado, Jerry Gutierrez, and a man named John, I can't remember his last name. He he later became a New York cop. But Mary Lou Rosado still works in the theater, a brilliant actress. And Jerry Gutierrez, of course, a Tony Award-winning director who died very early of AIDS, who I worked with several times. 
um, they became friends of mine. and uh, They were the ones who suggested, you should come to Juilliard. You know, they have a two-year program. You can join us in this and only do it in two years. Well, they didn't accept me for that. They accepted me for the four-year program, and I was not going to go back to school for four more years. Not a chance. Um, I was also accepted in the neighborhood playoffs. Um, and that, to me, made, made the most – I thought it made the most sense at the time because it was – it was a type of training that I knew I wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't the training that you would get at a college. It wasn't a literate training. It wasn't educational training. It was hands-on. What the hell is this thing called acting? What, what is this thing? You know, and 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 how do you get to it? How do you get to it when you need to get to it? That fascinated me. It took me a a fairly long time at the playhouse for uh, for Sandy's techniques to sort of resonate. Um, I think that's true of most people, actually, is that, you know, Sandy was a, he was a tyrant. He was a beloved tyrant and a difficult man, a very difficult tyrant, but a brilliant, brilliant, life-changing man in terms of artistry. And his approach was very dogmatic. You do what Sandy says to do, right, as the repetition exercise. Most people know about it, Meister technique. Well, you know, good God, if you do the repetition exercise for three months in a row, I mean, you, you want to go insane. You know, it's just like, well, do I ever get to act? When do I get to do a scene? It's like that. No, never, 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 never. But it took me a, a fairly uh, long time to realize that that repetition exercise is the basis of real responses, you know, and, and knowing what a real response is on stage as opposed to a phony response, an indicated response. And, and if you don't have real responses, real responses on stage, you're not acting. You're, you're, you're indicating. You, you can't be effective as an actor without it. And again, and like I said, uh, I didn't know that going in. I didn't really know that. I just knew that I could do this thing called acting. Um, but those two years with Sandy, and it was more than Sandy. It was Sandy and it was Bill Esper and um, a very famous 1950s cowboy actor named Richard Boone played Paladin, How Gun Will Travel. He took over for Sandy when Sandy had his voice box removed at cancer and had his voice box removed. And Richard Boone took over for him for several months before Sandy came back. And those three people had tremendous influence on me in terms of my approach to acting, my knowledge of acting, and my confidence with solving problems of an actor. I, I, I distinctly remember my first year at the playoffs. You were assigned a partner, right? And I was assigned this girl. I won't say her name. She was Miss New Orleans. And she was beautiful. She was really stunningly beautiful. But I mean, as an actress, an absolute block of wood. She, I couldn't get anything off of her in the repetition exercise. Nothing, nothing, nothing. She was just impossible. She was later kicked out. She got kicked out. She went home from Mardi Gras. And Sandy took attendance one day. And she's like, where's, where's uh, so-so? Oh, she's back from, she's a Mardi Gras queen. She has to be in Mardi Gras. Tell her not to come back. <laughs> and that was the end of her. So anyway, she did get, finally get kicked out. But I remember going to Sandy as a young actor and saying, oh, Sandy, I, 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 I don't know what to do. I'm just so frustrated. I get nothing from this woman. I get nothing, nothing, nothing all the time. You know, it's just deadness, deadness, deadness. And he was like, yeah, what are you worried about? He said, you know, it takes 20 years to become an actor. I was like, what? I don't have 20 years. He said, yeah, you won't even know you're you take 20 years before you even realize what I'm talking about. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I'll, I will never forget. It was probably about 10 or 12 years later when I was shooting a scene, I was shooting a scene in a movie of the week. 
with an actress who was the producer's girlfriend. And she was a lox. I mean, she was just, just nothing going on there. And I thought to myself, as I'm playing that scene, I now understand exactly what Sandy, what Sandy said to me, he said, it takes 20 years to become an actor. Don't, don't worry, don't worry. In 20 years, you'll be able to play both parts. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? Play both parts. And I remember sitting there shooting this scene with this woman, and I was playing both parts. I was giving myself what I needed to get from her in my own mind in order to respond properly. And I thought, wow, there it is. That's what Sandy was, was talking about. I'm playing both roles. But that's, you know, that's an advanced technique, I think, in, in a certain way. Young actors are, they may intrinsically know how to do that, but they probably haven't thought it through in the way that, that Sandy explained it to me. He was an extraordinary man. He was, and I was very lucky with him. He was very, very cruel to people. He could be devastating to actors. He had no tolerance for, for people who were either not talented or didn't work hard. And so people were terrified to do scenes for him. I mean, it was the most frightening experience in the world. It was like going up against God. You know? My very first scene that I did for Sandy, who finally they, they, they gave us scenes to do. And he gave me a scene from a play called Mr. Roberts, World War II naval thing. I was playing the captain of the ship and playing a scene with, uh, with a young soldier who was actually a Vietnam vet, a friend of mine, who was not a terribly good actor. He, he was there on the GI Bill just decided that maybe he would be an actor after he got out of the army. <laughs> a sweet guy, but not a very good actor. And we did this scene. We, we got through most of the scene. You know, he would usually stop people after 10 lines. Stop, stop, stop. What are you doing? There? Oh, my God. And then he would rip them, you know, assholes. Um, well, he stopped our scene. We got maybe three quarters of the way through it or something. And he stopped. And he started in on this, this guy who was playing the, the young soldier. And he just went after him and after him. And I, I'm sitting there sweating bullets thinking, oh, my. God, he's going next. He's going to start on me. You know, it's going to be horrifying. It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be atrocious. And he literally turned to him and he went, uh, that was okay. That was okay. You know, you need to work on your voice a little bit, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, t I'm telling you, everything about me in school changed that day. Everybody else in school was like, oh my God, you're fantastic. Sandy liked you. <laughs> I mean, it was like a weight had been lifted. And, and I spent the next year and a half thinking, you know, well, Sandy likes me. I'm, I'm in good shape here. You know, I can, I'm, I can listen. I can learn. And I don't have to, like, beat myself up to death. Um, everything changed because of that. The teachers changed their attitude towards me. The students changed their attitude towards me. It was, so it was kind of actually comic, comical. Well, there's a lot of instances where I think you can be in a class and you're almost kind of waiting for permission in some regard um, uh, to to kind of relax and, and to right. enjoy it. And in this kind of situation, it worked out that Sandy kind of bestowed this on you that you could finally relax. Do you have any ideas or, or looking back, like how you could have given yourself that permission earlier on? I, I think I suppose that if I had not been in an atmosphere that was quite so judgmental, I already had that attitude. Not to the degree that I probably needed it, but to some degree. I had that knowledge where I thought to myself, I, I, I'm good at this. This is the one thing in life I'm actually good at this. You know, when I get up on stage, I, I feel at home. I tell that to people now. I feel more at home on stage 
than I do in life. It's a safe place for me. And I, and I felt that as a, as a pretty young actor, too. So I think I would have given myself more permission had I not been in an environment that was quite so judgmental, which I don't think uh, acting school has to be. It's what Sandy was. It's, that's all. It's just what he was. And I think a lot of the gurus at that time, uh, the Strasbergs and the Stellas, um, uh, Hagens, the, uh, you know, I, I had a little bit of dealing with all those people. Um, and they were all tyrants. They were all very opinionated, and, and they sort of thrived on that sort of belligerent uh, attitude. Um, Sandy, of course, definitely. Uh, I don't think acting school has to be that. <laughs> it's not necessarily the healthiest thing in the world. But I'll, I'll say this. It, it made you realize that when you did something good, you really had done something good. There's a tremendous feeling of accomplishment when that happened. So you finish up with the Playhouse, you pro- you have more confidence, you have more technique, you have more understanding of what you're supposed to be doing. You combine that with your literary training. And what's your decision process at that point? Um, it was made for me. M- my very first two auditions, I was still in school. One was at the end of the first year of the Playhouse and one was at the end of the second year of the Playhouse. They were both for the same person, a very famous man. <laughs> Nico Sakharopoulos, who was the head of Williamstown. And uh, at Colgate, one of the men, one of the students who was there before me, four years before me, was Barnett Kelman. Barnett, of course, became a very famous television director uh, and theater director and was a good friend of mine. And he was running the second company at Williamstown in uh, the, the two years that I was at the Playhouse. He called me when I was in my first year, and he said, okay, so uh, he and Ken Frankel, I believe, were running second company at Williamstown. He said, Ken and I are putting together a company for second second company. We really want you to be a part of it. You know, these are the plays we're doing, and there's lots of roles, and blah, 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 blah. It's all going to be great. And But you have to go be approved by Nikos. Everyone has to be approved by Nikos. And I'm like, uh, okay, what's that mean? <laughs> said, well, you just have to, you know, you have to go to Nikos' apartment. He lives in Gramercy Park. You have to go to his apartment and do a monologue for him. And it's going to be great. Don't worry, because we really want you. Okay. So I had my two monologues, and I went to Nikos' apartment. It was like a Saturday morning. came into the city, and I went to Nikos' apartment, which was a, sort of a bizarre Byzantine red velvet pillows apartment. And he was sitting on a couch on one side of this tiny little room, and I knocked on the door, and I came in, and he said, you know, I told him who I was, and he said, yeah, and yes. And um, he said, okay, so you know, what are you doing for me? And I was doing a monologue, I believe, at that time, I was doing uh, Carlyle's Prophecy Speech from Richard II. Uh, and I started the, the monologue, and I got maybe three or four lines in, and his telephone rang. And he picked up his telephone, and he answered it, and he very softly kept talking on the phone and looking at me and just waving his hand as if to say, go on, keep going, keep going. And I did. I kept going. I kept going. And then he waved his hand again, keep going, keep going. All the time he's talking very softly on the phone. On the phone. I finished my monologue. He's still on the phone. He's still talking on the phone for another minute while I'm standing there. I have no idea what to do. He hangs up the phone after a minute and he goes, thank you. That was it. And I left the apartment. And I, it was my very first audition ever. As a, and I was still in school, right? My first year of the class. I walked out and went, uh, I don't know what that was, but that was pretty weird. Needless to say, I was not hired to do second <laughs> company at Williamstown. Flash forward one year later, 
It's my second year at the Playhouse. Barnett calls me again. He says, I don't know what the hell happened last year. That was crazy. Um, but uh, with, again, Ken and I are doing uh, second company at Williamstown. This, we really want you to do the second company. But yeah, you have to be approved by Nikos. It's not in his apartment this time. It's at the Williams Club, which is a club in, in Manhattan, you know, basically Williams University, Williams College works out of, um, they have the whole event set and stuff like that. So I go to, I go to the Williams Club and um, Barnett's there and Ken is there and they're, they're in a separate room and I meet with them and they're like, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. Nikos is in the next room. Don't worry. It's going to be fantastic. I walk into this next room. Now it's we're, now we're in a conference room that's like the, the freaking size of Yankee Stadium, right? He's sitting at one end. He's like freaking 50 yards away from me. I'm at the other end. And he says, go, go ahead, begin your monologue, begin. And, and now I said, well, maybe I won't do the Richard too. <laughs> I'll do something different. So I did my contemporary piece, which is a piece that I put together from Peter Barnes, The Ruling Class. I, I'm not kidding you. This is not, I'm, this, I'm not exaggerating. I said the first three words of the monologue. And he said, thank you, and stopped me. <laughs> and again, it was now, this is my second audition. I said three words. And he was, thank you. And I just shook my head and I said, well, I don't know what that's about. And I walked out. And I walked out. And needless to say, I didn't do second year at uh, second company at Williamstown. This man had something against me. I don't know what it was. Um, I wish someone would do that to me now because probably I would probably respond a lot differently. Uh, but they were my first two auditions. And I had to tell you, it had an effect on me. It had a real effect on me. I thought, wait a minute. This is not what I... Am I right for this? Am I, is this what I want to go through in my life? Is this really what I want? It wasn't maybe two or three weeks after that, probably even less than that, because we were at the, we were at the tail end of my second year at the Playhouse. And, you know, yeah, at the Playhouse, uh, in your second year, you put together scene, scene classes, and they invite people from the theater community to come see it, agents, cast and directors, blah, 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 blah. And we did a, a, a classical scene night, and luckily for me, Mary Calhoun, the dear, wonderful Mary Calhoun, who was cast and director at the Public Theater, uh, New York Shakespeare's Festival, um, she came to see that that presentation. And uh, two weeks later, called me in to audition for Shakespeare in the Park. Uh, they were doing Hamlet. Now, Shakespeare in the Park, of course, is a monumentally big job for any actor in New York, right? Incredibly famous, well-respected uh, thing. We were rehearsing a show in school, and I distinctly remember busting my ass to get downtown. You know, neighbor playoffs on 54th and 1st, and I had to get down to Lafayette and, and in, the, in the village to get to this audition for, for Hamlet, for, to be in the ensemble of Shakespeare in the Park. Just bust my ass. I got there just in time. I was the second to last actor that they saw. I got there just before they stopped seeing people. It, the, the, the interesting thing, there was the last actor they saw was an actor was a good friend of mine who I later did five plays with in New York, Stephen Lang, who's had a, a major career, of course, in, in film and in television. Um, and we were the last two people they saw. And at the end of my audition, again, I did the Carlisle Prophecy speech for a man named Michael Rudman, English director who was directing Sam Waterston in Hamlet. And he hired me in the room. He said to me when I finished my audition, he said, um, I don't know exactly what we'll be using you for this summer, but we will definitely be using you. And I thought I went out of there on like on air, you know, because after those two first two auditions with Nikos, I just thought, 
wow, this could be a tough, <laughs> be a tough business. I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, and everything changed after that. You know, I mean, I did two summers in the park uh, because of that. I worked with Joe Papp because of that. I, I did uh, several shows at the public with 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 an extraordinary group of people. Um, and I was, st- uh, you know, the first first show that I did there, that Hamlet with, with Sam, I was still in school. I hadn't even graduated from the playoffs yet. So, yeah, those first auditions were <laughs> eye-opening. Yeah, night and day in terms of your uh, reactions and, and, and just kind of all the things that a lot of actors fear. You know, it can be up, it can be down, and you have no idea what the person on the other side of the room is thinking. And That's exactly right. If it's a personal you, you, vendetta of some kind or You just or what? hope that they'll be – listen, we all – we all know that we're not going to get hired most of the time. That's just the way it is. Right. right. I mean, it's, it's what it is. But you, you hope that at least people will be kind to you. Sure. At least be kind. It's not that hard to be kind. Nikos was not kind to me. He was not. So that first production um, with with, uh, with Sam Watterson and, and uh, you doing Hamlet, do you remember taking away anything in terms of what professional actors were doing? Because obviously that was a big point in Sam Watterson's career, like that was a, yep. a big production. And yep. Do you remember watching or observing or seeing like, oh, this is what it means to be a professional? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you see a lot of, well, for, first of all, you see the disciplines that you need, right? Which, which uh, you, you, you can't screw around. You can't be late for rehearsals. You can't not know your lines. You can't, none of that's allowed. None of that's, nobody has time for that. That's obvious from the word go. So you think, oh, we're at a level now where people take this really seriously. And then to watch the people, for example, in that Hamlet, there was a fantastic character actor. Again, long since gone. He, and he doubled as Polonius and the Gravedigger. His name was Larry Gates. Most people know him as a soap opera actor, but he did the best Polonius, I tell you. It was funny. It was, it was unnerving. It was just a delightful Polonius, and I learned so much from from watching him. That was one actor that I learned a tremendous amount from. Ruby D. He was playing. I later later worked with several times after with that. He was playing Gertrude. He was an extremely kind woman and, and and supportive of young actors. She was doing Gertrude. Uh, Johnny Lithgow was playing Laertes, who became a, a, a friend of mine at the time. You know, he was actually my roommate for a while in in, uh, in Niagara when we took the show to Niagara, the Niagara University Art Park. In Niagara. John and I roomed together for a while. A lot of uh, terrific classical New York working actors, even more so the second year in the park when I did the Henry Five that Joe directed, Joe Papp directed. Joe's not a great director. Not by any means, Joe. I always tell people, Joe's direction was, um, well, gosh, you know, this this scene isn't isn't really working. Uh, bring me more cannons, <laughs> and uh, that's what they did. And he would blow holes in walls, and it became this became the circus. Uh, that's the way Joe directed. But that supporting cast in that Henry Five was miraculous. I mean, the people in that <laughs> Catherine was Meryl Streep before Meryl Streep was Meryl Streep. And I'll tell you, I learned unbelievable amount from watching her rehearse, because Joe is not a tremendous help to her in terms of making character decisions. But she would come into rehearsals every single time they'd do the Catherine scenes, and basically it's only two scenes. Right? She would come into into uh, rehearsal every time, and she would have a completely different take on who Catherine was. Sometimes she was coquettish. Sometimes she was stupid. Sometimes she would be uh, feisty, or sometimes she would be angry. So, I mean, I, I, I'm telling you, I saw her do Catherine six, eight, 
entirely different ways, and they all worked. They all worked. And I thought to myself, there's something special going on there. Right? This was before she was a star. This was clearly a woman working at a very, very high level. Uh, that was remarkable to watch. At the same time, a man who became a, a, a serious mentor of mine was Phil Bosco. And Phil was playing Pistol uh, in that production. And Phil later went on and we did uh, St. Joan together at Circle and Square. Um, <laughs> Phil was a remarkable influence on me in terms of grace with language and clarity of language. Nobody spoke better than Phil Bosco, which is why he's, he's noted as the, one of the great Shabian actors of our, our times. Um, but also Shakespeare, too. He's, his pistol was absolutely brilliant. It was funny. It was heartbreaking. It was sad. He was a joy to watch. And there were quite a few people in that, in that Henry V. I mean, Bill Hurt was in that Henry V. And, and Bruce McGill. And, and um, oh, gosh, I'm... Forgetting half the people, Joe Bova, who I did a bunch of plays with, who was a tremendous character actor in New York. Uh, just, just a lot of strong, strong people. When I spoke to uh, Armin Shimmerman, he specifically mentioned uh, Phil Bosco. Of in, course, he did. Saint Joan, <laughs> and and he was saying that you know he had a smaller part and he had the time to kind of watch the scenes every night. And he said it was like a master class. And he said specifically with with Phil's use of parentheticals. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what he, he remembers taking away from it. But, um, yeah. And, and I would say probably people of my generation, um, or younger, we are familiar with some of the films he's done, of course, right. but, um, but right. we missed, we missed that huge chunk of his career where he was on stage and just, you know, really being amazing. He was the character actor's character actor, uh, without a doubt. He, uh, anything you saw him in, he was, he excelled that. He was, he was just, he, he commanded the stage. I mean, his work in Joan, in St. Joan was extraordinary. He was playing Warwick in Joan in his, uh, like I said, there was a fluidity, there was a musicality to his language that uh, very few actors had. But it was, it was more than that. It was a clarity. It was, it was knowing how to get to the essence of every single thought. And in Shaw, that is so important, you know, because you have extended sentences and the, the man loves the use of language, but you've got to get to the essence of what the guys are talking about. And Phil did that better than anyone I'd ever seen at that time, and probably better than 99.9% of the people I've ever worked with since. And he was a master at it. He was a strange, wonderful man. He is a strange, wonderful man. He's still alive. I love him dearly. Um, he was a total mentor to me. I, I mean, I, I was enamored of him. And there were scenes in Joan where I was playing a guard and had to stand there and watch those scenes every single night. And um, it was a learning experience. He was astonishing. Uh, and, a, and a tremendous man to sort of take you under his wing. I loved young actors. Did you take away anything from watching Phil rehearse and his technique yeah, Phil, one of the many wonderful things about Phil is that he, he if you watched him, you would go, oh, I guess there's, there's something a little old-fashioned about the way he approaches classical theater. I mean, it wasn't Al Pacino, right? It wasn't that. It was something that, that sat on a higher level in terms of uh, analysis of text and, and, and use of language. Um, so you would think to yourself, oh, I wonder if he's an actor who makes a decision about everything in advance and is uh, not open to anything else. 
you know, um, which is usually a, a, a sign of deadness in, in an actor. You're not really open to what's going on in the moment. Phil was not that. Phil was totally open to the moment. Phil was totally open to whatever other actors would be doing and how that would affect him. Always open to any new ideas to do something differently as that might work better. Um, he was never rigid about anything. But the final result was <laughs> was pretty impressive. Well, you mentioned you worked for a number of seasons with the New York Shakespeare Festival, and, and you did a few shows with Circle in the Square. What do you think you did to kind of nurture those relationships and those, those professional relationships so that you continued working with the same people, the same producing organizations? Um, I, I was very lucky in, in terms of Circle in the Square. It was a fluke that I got hired there. Like I said, my parents had no contacts with show business people. They didn't really have any idea how to help me in terms of any way. I was pretty much on my own that way. My father uh, was a member of a country club, and there was one friend of his who worked for Gray Advertising, huge advertising agency in New York. And um, he had set up, he said, you know, you, sh you should meet the, our, our casting person at, uh, at Gray, Gray Advertising. And I was like, yeah, commercials, I don't really have that much interest in commercials, I never have. But I'm happy to go meet her. And, uh, and, I, and I did, and I went met her. She was this lovely young lady who was um, just, we seemed to hit it off. She had, a, you know, she, she, uh, at that time I had already done several off-Broadway things, working in the park, and I would, ended up doing two years at CSC, a, a repertory company in New York, which was a miraculous job. The work wasn't always very good, but having two years doing rotating rep in New York was uh, really a huge learning experience for me. So I had those credits, and they were mostly classical theater credits. And I met this woman who was casting career advertising, and of course she later became, her name was Lynn Kressel, and she became one of the biggest casting directors in New York. She started casting for Circle in the Square. She's cast many, many films and TV projects. She cast The Stand, which I did, the Stephen King miniseries. She became a, f a fan of mine, and she was the one who first called me in uh, to Circle in the Square for my first show there, the Romeo and Juliet that I did there. Um, and I later did three shows at Circle because of her. You know, that was a fluke, just because my father had a business, you know, a country club associate who knew Lynn Crest when she was at an advertising agency. Your, your dad didn't think he'd, he'd be able to help, but he probably helped more than uh, he would ever realize. But he did. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> that is exactly right. So after doing all of that theater in New York, were you... Were you decided about being a theater actor, or a regional theater actor? Did you know, were you very determined about, this is the kind of actor I want to be, and this is the kind of work I want to do? If someone had said to me at age 18 that you could be a working actor in New York as a character actor, I would have thought, sign me up. That sounds great to me. The more I worked in New York, the more I realized, I, I remember reading something, I remember reading something by, that Bert Lahr said in the 1930s. He said, you want to be a Hollywood star? Go to New York. Work in the theater. You'll become a movie star. Well, I felt that in the 1980s in New York, exactly the opposite had happened. You want to be a Broadway star? Go to L.A. Get a TV show. Get a recurring. Get a sitcom. Get, get something that people notice, notice you and know you. Because all the people that I was supporting as a character actor in New York were television stars or British imports. That's what was going on in New York in the early 80s. And it was noticeable to me. I thought, I'm going to get stuck here as this kind of 
journeyman, secondary roles actor uh, unless I make a move. It just so happened that I then booked a show at Goodspeed Opera House, working with uh, Jerry Gutierrez, who I mentioned before, I was directing it. Um, and that show went out on the road for two years before it went back to New York. It was a musical called Little Johnny Jones, George M. Cohen, 1908 musical, in which I was playing the sort of comedic villain, the Captain Hook of the piece. Um, it was a two-year journey, and it played L.A., played the Dorothy Chandler at L.A., and it broke the house record of the Dorothy Chandler. It was a very wave the American flag, gung-ho America, little Yankee Doodle Dandy, give my regards to Broadway, all those great Cohen numbers. Of course, it went back to New York with Donny Osmond in the lead and closed in one night. <laughs> it just got the absolute shit blown out of it in New York. The critics annihilated it. Um, but it was a big hit on the road. At good speed, when we did it at good speed, and then again in L.A. when we did it in L.A., there was a man who came to see it, who a very famous filmmaker, second in command of Francis Ford Coppola. His name is Fred Roos. And Fred was a big fan of this musical. He loved it. Saw it like twice at good speed, and then he brought all of his friends and stuff to see it at, at the Dorothy Chandler in, in L.A. And Fred invited me and my very closest friend at the time, still is my very closest friend, Ernie Sabella, uh, who was in the musical with me. And we had done other shows together. So we knew each other very well. Uh, he invited us to come meet his casting people at Zoetrope Studios. Zoetrope, of course, was the studios that, that Coppola put together that eventually went under. But we went and we met all of his casting people at Zoetrope. And when Zoetrope folded, all of those casting people became independent casting directors. It was Nancy Foy and it was uh, Jan Hershenson, Jane Jenkins and, and uh, Jennifer Scholl and Elizabeth Lustig. Some of them are now passed away, but they all became very, very working casting directors. And Fred was the one who said to us and, and those casting directors, said, you know, you guys, because Ernie is my friend. Ernie is also a very specific character type. He's the voice of Pumbaa in, in Lion King. That's what most people know him from. And so we were these this, uh, these two character actors, and they were like, you guys should consider coming to L.A. You know, there's really work for you out here. There's work for you out here. And given that, and given the fact that I did think that New York was turning into an Anglophile television studio, that, you know, everything was either a Tom Stoppard British import or you know, the leads were being played by some, some sitcom star. Ernie and I, on spec, moved to L.A. in 1982, in July of 1982. It worked out really well for us because it was so different. We had these connections. We had these connections from those five or six casting directors. And we traveled the town together as a duo. And every single time we would contact somebody or we would have a contact with somebody, we would say, who else can you introduce us to? Who else is there? And the fact that we were this young comedic duo who sort of entertained them in these interviews, which was such an advantage to being one-on-one. -on -one. It was the two of us, and they were having fun, and we were making jokes, and everyone was having a good time. So whenever we asked them, who else can you introduce us to? We met over 50 casting directors in the first, like, three months that we were in Los Angeles. It was a magical kind of uh, chemistry that people loved. They introduced us to agents. They introduced us to casting people. They introduced us to other producers. Um, and we just traveled the town for the first three months every day, meeting two and three people. It was an extremely effective way to break into into the LA scene. And were these meetings just to get to know them, just taught, not yep, necessarily absolutely. perform or anything like that? Nope. No performances involved. It was just 
get to, you know, here we are. We're these two guys in from New York. We have these contacts. You know, Fred Roos said that we should move to L.A. Jennifer Schuller really likes us. Uh, you know, these were big names that we were throwing at them. You know, sometimes those didn't mean a thing, but a lot of times they did. A lot of people would be like, okay, so we'll come in, we'll meet you. And we ended up meeting a lot of people. So how long did it take before auditions actually started happening and then you even book your first job? It was very quick. It was actually very quick. We moved here in July and my very first show was a sitcom that was, it was Steve Kolzak was one of the casting directors who we were introduced to. Again, Steve, is, Steve passed away very young. He was one of the head casting directors of Paramount. And uh, Steve called me in to audition for a very small role on this new sitcom that wasn't on the air yet. Uh, everyone had high expectations for it. Um, and I went in and I shot it. I had a tiny little non-speaking role in the teaser of the piece. And, of course, that show uh, was called Cheers. <laughs> My very first job in L.A. was the third episode of Cheers. I actually I watched that episode recently. I was just watching the shows anyway. And, I, and you came in and I went, <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> Misha the Symbols player. <laughs> yeah, that was my very first job. And it was only maybe a month after we got here, maybe even less than a month. For, for people that haven't seen that part, you're in the kind of what they would call, I guess, the cold open. You don't have any lines. So what was it that you think you were able to convey that you were like, yeah, I'm the guy? <laughs> what was that audition like? Yeah, it, I don't even think I don't even think we auditioned for that role because there were no lines. OK, I think they had us read other stuff for it. But they saw this kind of comedic frustration, this kind of Jackie Gleason frustration because Misha is the cymbals player is counting out this very, very, very long rest in the middle. He's a cymbals player, right? So, you know, he's got a half an hour before he needs to be back. And he's counting out this endlessly long rest. And, of course, they, they give him a beer and, and Diane, uh, Shelley Long, brings him, brings him his change and goes, and so here's your change. That's one and two and three. And, and it screws them all up and stuff. And he slams down his beer and runs out. Um, but I think it was that sort of comedic frustration that they saw that they thought, oh, that would be funny for, for Misha. <laughs> so w where was it that you started to feel like in L.A. things took a turn for the good that you were like, oh, OK, this might actually work? I think it was pretty early on. I mean, both Ernie and I, uh, both of our wives and my son had just been born. My son was less than two years old. We're back in New York. My wife was teaching in New York, and uh, so, uh, you know, it, that part of it was difficult. That part of it was like, uh, we're out here. Are we going to stay here? Is this – because we really did come out on spec. We were only going to stay for whatever it was. I can't remember, a month at most or something. But we both started working right away, uh, and I started working a fair amount in television. And so it then it, it became pretty obvious that this was the right thing to do at that time, was to come out here. And so my wife, God bless – you know, gave up her teaching job in New York, uh, packed up our apartment, gathered our two-year-old together and moved to L.A. And basically a big move for them, for her especially. You know, I think it worked out brilliantly for her. She ended up teaching out here for 35 years at one of the best schools in the country. And that's been fabulous for her. She just retired this year. So I think early on we realized that if we could move our families out here, that this was we were going to give L.A. a shot. I've been here ever since. I've gone back to New York twice to do shows since then. Ernie has since moved back east. He lives in Connecticut now. But, uh, we, yeah, we stayed out here for long, long periods of time. It just became obvious that uh, that uh, in those days you could make a living as a middle-class actor doing doing guest stars on television. It's almost impossible now. It's, uh, it's, uh, everything has changed in terms of the business in that, in that way. 
Um, I wouldn't suggest anyone come out here and try to make a living as a guest star on television. <laughs> that would be pretty difficult right now. It's hard. It's impossible to get auditions, and you can't make very much money when you do. Uh, that part of it's changed pretty radically. But in those days, it was it was a, it was a great way to get people to know who you were. And I, and I continued to do theater the whole time that I was here. I was always doing a play somewhere. If I was not shooting television stuff, I was doing a play somewhere. Well, by the way, did you come up with any kind of text uh, or anything that you'd be able to share how you kind of approach it? I've been looking at this piece that from Hothouse, from this next play that I'm doing, the Tias, this Pinter piece, and there's, a, there's several monologues in it that the character has. And there's one, his very last monologue, which um, I've been working on a lot. And, it, and I find it very challenging, this piece, for a lot of reasons. Um, I think there's something maybe to be learned from that as I'm learning from it, because I'm not really sure where I'm going to end up with it myself, but I'm actually working on it as we're doing this interview. So it's kind of in my mind in terms of how I approach it and what I think it needs and how best to bring it to life, because it's an odd piece. It's a very, very odd piece. So I'm happy to go through that with you or part of it. Yeah, sure. Or something. Well, whatever you'd like to share. So this is this is a character. I mean, nobody. It's a, a play that a Pinter play that almost nobody knows. The Hot House. He wrote it in 1958, uh, right after he wrote Birthday Party. Um, Birthday Party, of course, was a huge flop when it first opened, and so he thought, well, I guess I'm not a very good playwright. And he took the Hot House and stuck it in a drawer, pulled it out again in 1980, and said, yeah, this is a pretty good play. I think I'll produce it. So he produced it again in 1980, and it's. Uh, I think it's a really interesting play. It's dark. It's dark and very funny. Very, very crazy funny. You know, I call it a cross between Pinter and Orton and Stoppard. That's kind of the British tone to it that, that's dark and, and funny. Um, and this character is the head of an asylum. We don't quite know what kind of asylum it is. We assume it's a mental institution. Um, he's been the head of it for quite some time, and he is in the early stages of dementia. And he can't remember anything. He's having trouble remembering who the patients are, or what patients he's seen, or what patients have been treated, or what's happening in the asylum itself. And it's a, it, you know, the play is a sort of a study of British bureaucracy and the failures of the state institutions in Britain at the time. And his uh, his last speech, his girlfriend in the piece, who's, who realizes that he's really starting to lose it. She sort of, in a very odd way, challenges him. He's supposed to give a Christmas address to the staff, to the staff and to the patients. He's supposed to give his yearly Christmas address. And she challenges him. He's been shying away from making it because he, in his heart of hearts, he thinks he probably can't do it. He probably will get lost in the middle of it in his dementia. Um, so he's been terrified of doing it. And she puts a lot of pressure on him towards the end of the play to say, you know, you better show me that you can do this. You better show me that you can step up and be a man. Or, you know, this relationship is over. And uh, so he has this this speech that he does, which is it's such an interesting speech because 90% of it is a bunch of banal platitudes that people make. Like if you've ever listened to the Christmas address that Queen Elizabeth gives, it's the dullest thing you've ever heard, you know. Merry Christmas to you all, and, 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 and the prosperous new year, and blah, 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 and it's a great country, and we hope that everything is hunky-dory in the years. I mean, and people just fall asleep, right? And this, this speech is 
filled with those platitudes. But underneath that is this desperate man who's trying to regain some sense of his worth, trying to prove to this girl who's in the room with him that he can do it, uh, and at the same time um, do this sort of successful platitude-ridden speech to people of the of the of the hot house. Um, so it, it, it's a very interesting tone that you've got to find in in this piece, um, and, and that's a real challenge for actors. You know, if you push it where it doesn't want to go, it's not not right. It's if you try to push the comedy of it. It gets boring after a while. It doesn't. It lacks reality. So you have to find you have to find that line between the absurdity of it, the desperateness of it, the neediness of it, and the reality of it. The reality of this man trying to give a speech. And that, so all those things have to be taken into account in how you musically score this three-page monologue. It's a long monologue. And that's a real challenge. That's a real challenge so that people don't get bored with it, so people understand the connection that it has to the rest of the play. And that, in fact, it's right at the end of the play. It's the last thing he says. That it, it's, it's obviously making some kind of point, that Pinter is making some kind of point here. That's what it's about. <laughs> um, I'm happy to read it to you. And, and I, think you'll, you know, I think you'll see what I'm talking about in, 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 this, in the sense of it. Patients, staff, and understaff. A Merry Christmas to you all, and a happy and prosperous New Year. And on behalf of all the staff, I'd like to wish all the understaff the very best of luck for the year to come, and a very happy Christmas. And to the patients, I should like to send a personal greeting to each and every one of them, wishing them the heartiest compliments of the season and the very best wishes on behalf of the staff, uh, the understaff, and myself. Uh, not forgetting the ministry, which I know would be glad to be associated with these words for a healthy, happy, and prosperous new year. <sighs> we have had our difficulties in the year that is about to die. Our little troubles, our little sorrows, as well as our little joys. But through working together, through each and every one of us pulling his weight, no matter how lowly or apparently trivial his job, by working, by living, by pulling together as one great family, we stand undaunted. We say goodbye to the old year very soon now, and we hail the new. But I say to you as we stand before these embers, that we carry with us from the old year uh, things which will stand us in good stead in the new, and we are not daunted. Since I last spoke to you, I have traveled far. I have seen many lands and many peoples. And today I have received greetings and gifts from many of my cousins who reside in other lands, far-off lands. And they tell me that over there things are not really very different to over here. Customs may differ, languages may differ, but men are the same the whole world over. Some of you, sitting at your loudspeakers tonight, may sometimes find yourselves wondering whether the little daily hardships 
the little daily disappointments, the trials and tribulations which seem continually to dog you are, in the end, worth it. To you, I would say one simple thing. Have faith. Yes, I think if I were asked to convey to you a special message this Christmas, it would be that. Have faith. Remember that you are not alone. And that we, here, for example, in this, our home, are inextricably related one to another. The staff to the understaff, the understaff to the patients, the patients to the staff. Remember this as you sit by your fires with your families who have come from near and from far to share this day with you. And may you be content. And that's how the play ends. <laughs> wow. Actually, it doesn't end there. It ends with a, there's a, there's one tiny little scene after. That. Sure. Well, you know, it, it is fascinating as we, as I think back to what you were saying earlier, you know, finding the human being in there. Yeah. And uh, it's also, <laughs> this, may, this may sound a bit like a backhanded compliment, but th there's also a bit of comfort in knowing that someone like you is still challenged by these people. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, boy. Am I ever. You know? I mean, it's, listen, you're, I mean, I'm, I, I always say to people, this is, you know, my, my advice to young actors, you measure your career by what you say no to. When you're 20 years old, you say no to nothing. You do everything you possibly can. When you're 67 years old, like I am, I say no to a lot of things. <laughs> I just don't have the time or the need to do certain things that, that people ask me to do. I just can't do it. Right? And I don't want to do it. Um, but you measure the growth of your career by what you say no to. Uh, and so for me, at my age, it's always about the character. It's about the role. Does this role interest me? Is there something that's going to challenge me in this role? Is there something that I haven't really experienced as an actor that I can dig into, um, that I feel an audience will respond to? Uh, so you're right. I mean, it's uh, it, it's endlessly challenging. There's, there's always stuff out there that you that you think, boy, that's that's, that's an interesting guy. <laughs> and this guy, this character, Root, his name is, he is a fascinating guy in this play. I mean, he is all over the place. You know? and that's that's uh, it's both entertaining and and emotionally satisfying, but also I think the audience is going to be sort of fascinated by it <laughs> in that Pinter sort of way. So yeah. Well, I do really appreciate you saying yes uh, to to our time today. And, and oh, my pleasure. <laughs> you can say you can say no, but do you have time for a few uh, remaining kind of more sure. rapid fire questions? Sure, fire away. Okay, cool. So these are these are shorter questions. Your answers don't have to be as short. But uh, <laughs> what is it that you attribute your ability to have worked so much to? Um, well, I'd say a couple of things. Uh, talent, yeah, you know, that's a God-given thing, I think. Uh, hard work, um, paying attention to the, the things that you can improve on and paying and really paying attention to them. Um, things like dialect work, things like vocal work, knowing how to use your voice, knowing how to do different voices, knowing projection, uh, those technical things that, that you can actually work on yourself. You know? so, you, so, yeah, you have to work on them. You have to actually do the work. That's part of it. Talent, yes, that, that's a big part of it. Um, again, it's that thing that, that we talked about before, was that finding the human being in these characters. I think people see that in me now. 
um, that that I will bring a humanity to this that 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 will be more moving and ultimately more more rewarding for an audience. And people have become to trust me that way. It, it, it's a funny thing. Again, I, I tell young actors, work makes work. The more you work, the more likely you are to work more because people will see you when people will get to know you and people will begin to trust you. Um, and that's happened in my career for sure. I never worked in the regional theater when I was in New York. I always worked in New York when I was in New York. I never worked in the regional theater when I moved to L.A. I was always working in L.A. until I did one job in regional theater. I happened to have a space of time when I wasn't doing anything in L.A. Um, and uh, Timmy Neer, who was running San Jose Rep, had this two-character play, Nixon's Nixon, play about Nixon, Nixon and Kissinger. And she asked me to play Kissinger and come up and do that and do, do that. And because of that one play, I started working in regional theater more than uh, most people I know in my life. I've probably done 30 plays in the regions in the last 10, 12 years. Um, because regional theaters are funny that way. They all sniff each other's butt. They all know what's going on in every other regional theater. So if you get a good reputation somewhere, um, other regional theaters are going to know about that too. And that's what happened with me. I mean, there were, there were people in the Bay Area who saw that production who then hired me to do other plays, and they hired me to do other plays. So I always tell people, work makes work. That's that's part of being successful. Keep working. Do as much as you can. Um, and the other thing is, don't be the problem child. You know, And this is particularly true when you're playing large roles. If people say the fish stinks from the head, well, the fish is fresh from the head, too. So you need to be that guy who is really supportive and, and who people look to uh, for kindness and support. Uh, don't be the guy who's distant. Don't be the guy who looks down on young actors. Or don't be, be the guy who's there for people, who's there to help, who's there to make this experience a pleasurable and, and joyful experience. And theater can be so joyful. It can be so inspiringly joyful. But a lot of that depends on personalities and, and how people respond to that. And I, I'm very conscious of that, very conscious of, of being there for people when whenever I can be. And, and, I, th and I think people recognize it all the time. Um, that's a big part of also people wanting to work with you again. So I'd say those those kinds of things. What do you wish you had paid more attention to? And what do you wish you had paid less attention to? Wow, that's a good one. I paid more attention to. I, I wish I had paid more attention to how to be a better salesman, self-salesman. I'm horrible at it, horrible at selling myself. I always think, well, the work should speak for itself. But let's be honest, most people don't see the work, you know, unless you're on a TV show for 10 years. Most people don't see the work. Um, so I wish I had found better ways to sell myself. I think, uh, again, that's changed radically in my lifetime because of the advent of social media and podcasts and like uh, all the stuff that we're doing. There are different ways to sell yourself now. But again, you've got to be really on top of it and you've got to be good at it. I wish I'd been better at that. Um, I was never good at it. I still stink at it. <laughs> um, what do I wish I had paid less attention to? I, I, I guess, I don't know. That's a good one. What do I wish I had paid less attention to? Uh, I learned early on not to pay a lot of attention to the negativity that's involved with, with this and not take it as personally as because everything is rejection. Everything is, is put up the armor because people are going to say no. Um, I guess it took me a little while 
to, to deal with it, but I did deal with it reasonably well early on. Uh, I didn't have a lot of like, oh my God, not good. A lot of it has to do because I was working, so I didn't didn't have that those feelings of insecurity as much as a lot of my friends did. I, wish I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. I'm not sure. Pretty happy with my life, I guess, Nathan. Well, that's that's a <laughs> that's a good answer. Um, so I know you're in rehearsals now for a show, but if in the rare event that you're in between things, what do you do when you're not working? How do you structure your days? How do you kind of keep your mind active? Any rituals or anything, things like that? Um, I play a lot of golf. I, f- I love it. I have a, a foursome that I've been playing with for 35 years, four actors here in L.A., um, and that is a, it's a real mind clearing experience for me. It's away from the business. It's, you know, four hours away in nature, being competitive with my buddies. And it's just fun. Um, they're all actors and I don't think any of us have ever worked together. <laughs> it's that kind of, that kind of, uh, camaraderie that we have. It's, it's, uh, it's a big part of my life. Actually. I love it. Um, so there's, there's that, um, I am constantly reading scripts reading new plays, trying to find pieces that I find interesting. Um, I do find that the older I get, the more I enjoy doing new plays as opposed to classics for a simple reason. And that reason is that ultimately we are storytellers. That's who we are. And and new plays, people don't know how they end. People have no idea. They're always sitting on the edge of their seat if it's a good play, wondering where it's going. If you do Hamlet, People know where it's going. <laughs> so that's a different, uh, you, you, you have a different responsibility as an actor. You try to find a way to tell the story that everybody knows differently. You're trying to find a way to do it. But in a new play, people don't know where you're going. People don't know. It's always a surprise. And that is tremendous and rewarding as an actor, I think, that, that surprise element. So I spend a lot of time reading scripts, constantly reading scripts. Oh, my God. I'm inundated with scripts. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, everything you've been uh, able to my share pleasure, today. My friend. And uh, I will let you get back I hope to... I it's of uh, some use to somebody. Oh, I've, I've, uh, well... It, <laughs> back it, to learning lines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back to back to the, the script at hand. So, no, thank you. Thank you again so, so much. It's been great. My pleasure. It's Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. And if you can take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, that will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all comments and thank you very much for doing that. Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash podcast for the show notes and any links from today's episode. You can also follow the show at WA Journey on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect and let us know what did you enjoy from the show. Don't forget to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial from Audible. Thank you again to today's guest. I really appreciate and value all the people that contribute their time to making this show possible. I'm Nathan Agan, and thanks for listening.